Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Being a Fan of Disney podcast. I'm your host, Cody Haver. In this episode, I'm joined by B. Eldridge, a doctoral student at University College London, whose research focuses on the representation of motherhood and aging in Disney princess movies and projects. This was a really, really fun conversation, and I learned a tremendous amount from B. I hope you enjoy listening to this as much as I enjoyed this visit. Please come along with us on our adventure. All right, everybody, welcome back to another class. Um, this time, I'm really, really excited. We're joined by B. Eldridge. She's a doctoral student at University College London, and she is here to talk about one, her Disney fandom and her research background where she focuses on Disney princesses and the representation of motherhood in those movies. And before we started recording, um, we were talking about some other things. So there, there's four or five other topics that I want to get to. Um, but I first want to start and, and focus in on, on her primary work. Um, so B, thank you and welcome. Um, can you first kind of walk us through, give us the, the introduction to your fandom, walk us through today and include why you research what you research? Um, sure. So uh, my fandom is sort of just the whole of well, the whole of Disney for the majority of it. Um, I, I love Disney villains in particular, but um, I think, yeah, just all of Disney is, is fabulous to look at and to study because there's just so many amazing things out there to look in at at Disney. Um, but I, like I said, I love the villains and I love looking at villains who've been queer coded particularly um, and villains who are mothers and my doctoral research focuses on the wicked stepmother figure. And I look at, you know, in, in previous works, I've looked at in general, just sort of the, the evil stepmother, uh, Lady Tremaine, the wicked stepmother. I've looked at adoptive mothers like uh, Frau Gertrude in Rapunzel and all of that and why these characters are villainous and these other mothers, as a lot of us deem them, are seen as villainous. Um, and their biological versus non-biological status and what that has to do with this villainous uh, portrayal. So yeah, that's sort of where I am today. I kind of started doing all of that good stuff when I was getting my master's degree at the University of Edinburgh. And then it led me to uh, looking at Jungian archetype and the mother archetype in particular and how that appeared in fairy tales. And then that led me to Disney and my PhD. Nice. Very nice. Thank you. Um, to, to jump right in, the first question I have is really in, it's not just, it's not just in Disney, it's in uh, kind of popular culture entertainment. What was the kind of foundation for using, um, especially stepmothers as like a villain? Do you, can you tell us anything about that from, from the research you've done? So that actually has a bit more of a history behind it, not necessarily in popular culture, but in fairy tales, right? So that's where my mm -hmm. primary background is, is in fairy tales. And what we saw with the Brothers Grimm, who were collectors of sorts, I mainly call them editors of fairy tales because they took fairy tales and edited them for the collection. 
Um, and what they did was they actually took tails like Snow White and they made the biological mother a stepmother. So they added that extra step in there on purpose to separate the child reader, the child audience from the biological mother possibly being evil to the stepmother. So that was part of that transition in the fairy tale's lifespan um, because there's no such thing as an original fairy tale that I try and tell everyone. They stem from oral tradition and this is sort of where they were at. And so the Grimm's, as they wrote them down, they kind of solidified their versions, but they edited them so much that we actually get a bunch of different versions. But yeah, so that's sort of where that wicked stepmother trip came from in the grim version of fairy tales. Um, and could, what we- Can I jump in real quick? Sorry. Yeah, go right I'm, ahead. No. I'm going to forget if I don't. Um, <laughs> does that, you said it comes from oral history. Mm-hmm. Does that have anything to do with like the progression of growing up when a child is younger, you know, they think mm-hmm. their parents can do no wrong. And then at a certain point in their life when they're, after they've, you know, matured a little bit or just had different life experiences, we kind of accept that, you know, parents are humans. They do things that, that maybe we don't like, they, they make mistakes, but you know, that kind of taking the, the, maybe the negative aspects of the biological mother or the biological parent and putting them into the stepmother role. Mm-hmm. Um, do you think that has anything to do with kind of that progression of, of, of storytelling and everything? I think it, it has a progression to it of social culture and like societal discourse at the time period. There's this notion that a biological parent was better because a biological mother survived, right? Because especially back in, you know, Germany in the 1800s, there was a high uh, mortality rate for mothers. And so we we had a lot of blended families and we have them today. And so the stepmother was given all these negative aspects. That way the child could, they weren't as essentially um, frightened by this notion because okay. the original villain in the Grimm, so... The Grimm's have an 1810 draft of their collection that was found in the monastery of all places. And what we see in that draft is the Snow White villain. The villain in the Snow White tale is actually a biological mother. And okay. she's just called mother. So she's just the, that's it. She's just the mother, the biological whatever. In 1819, they changed it to the stepmother. And a lot of scholars have argued that was because the brothers Grimm held their own biological mother in such high regard Mm -hmm. that they purposely did that separation. And so if they held their biological mother in such high regard, they wanted to ensure, hey, that's what stayed. And so it kind of just entered into the circulation at that point. And that's sort of where that trope kind of comes from. I can't definitively say that's exactly where it comes from. But at least in the world of the Grimm's Tales, that's where it comes from. Hmm. Okay. Yeah, that's really, really interesting. Thank you for that. Um, so so keep keep going with your, your discussion, please. Yeah, sure. So what we then saw was um, the Grimm's took the biological part out of the stepmother. And they continued. And then that's sort of how the tale was. And then Disney saw the tale. And was like, great, we have a wicked stepmother and we have a princess. And he loved the tale. Um, Disney actually saw 
the film Snow White done by Winthrop Ames in 1916 in Kansas City. Okay. Um, he actually, that was the first time he saw Snow White. It was actually based on a play that Winthrop Ames did as well in 1912. But Disney saw the film version of it and saw Marguerite Clark playing Snow White. And that's actually the basis for his Snow White was Marguerite Clark's version of it. Um, and so we get that. And then that stepmother soap just sort of stayed. And it just kind of kept on remaining. And we have this trope of the wicked stepmother that's been around now for, I mean, of eons. Uh, you look back in time, there's stepmothers everywhere and they're just portrayed in a negative light. Mm-hmm. And I couldn't tell you where exactly that comes from but that's part of our, our culture and society and it definitely impacts stepmothers in blended family yeah yeah i mean it's that's so interesting to to look at and like the the impact of entertainment the mm-hmm. impact and influence of the walt disney company i mean this is the 100th year anniversary of the company okay. so obviously you know a company that's been around that long obviously has a very big impact on society um so yeah that that's extremely extremely interesting so what's your particular focus when you look at um motherhood and the portrayal of motherhood and the disney projects so i usually look at the princess to the mother dichotomy with a focus on the mother um a lot of other research has focused specifically more on the princess in that dichotomy and the impact that mother has on the princess. But I look at the mother and the impact that she has had with society, with the princess, and with that. So I make her the main character when I'm studying these things. Um, So I look at them as her tales. So the Grimm's version, there is no primary character. It's pulled from a third-person sort of omniscient voice. So there is no primary character. It's just sort of like a surveyor of the tales and for some reason the princess has been the focus um but many scholars when it comes to snow white have argued that it's about snow white and the stepmother and particularly with focus on the stepmother because in the tales and in the films she gets more attention more of the light more of the focus she's the more popular character um especially in disney's film um she was the more popular character she was more active she had she just lit up the screen when she was on it essentially And so I look at the impact of society at the time period to like the 1930s. What was the stepmother like? If there's not a whole lot of research there, okay, what was the negative aspect of the mother figure? Why were they given to the wicked stepmother? What was the 1930s society going on? We had the Great Depression, the New Deal era. So I look at all of that sort of stuff within my PhD. And then beyond that, I look at um, other forms of motherhood. So like adoptive mothers stepmothers with children from previous marriages so that gives you Fraugerta and Lady Tremaine and they look at how they're all three of these these mother figures from from Grim Hilda to Fraugerta and Lady Tremaine they all have really interesting aspects of being older right because they're supposed to be mother figures but particularly with uh, Gretel and Grim Hilda we see them actually age and wither away mm-hmm. in the film so while Grimhilda falls off a cliff in the version of a crone, Grimhilda actually withers into sand and disappears. Um, so we see this this ageist sort of portrayal, and I look at what that means for older moms. What does that mean? Why is that a bad thing? Why is aging as a mom bad? Where do we start to see that age sort of happen with 
uh, live action actresses. So why at that age are they perceived as old? Why is it like 35 women are perceived as old mm-hmm. and then they're killed off? Or why is it that the old, the mother who lives is the mother who becomes a villain, whereas the mother who dies is heralded as good? So that's sort of all the aspects I look into from the different areas of, of motherhood and the sort of area that I focus on. And then I also do some birth studies and ages studies as well. So I, I tried to make mental notes of everything. Um, <laughs> first, and, and I'll probably forget things, I apologize. The Okay. In your research, do, do you think that the reason a mother that has passed away is kind of heralded or held up in high regards compared to the stepmother is because like, does any, does that have to do with anything like people's memories? You know, people tend to remember things in certain, in a certain perspective and they're not interacting with this person in real time or in current time, they're interacting with someone who is, you know, the stepmother who is probably telling them they can't do things. They can't, you know, they trying to help them through life. So they're upset about that. Um, mm-hmm. So then therefore like they get the negativity placed on them. Whereas the parent who's no longer around, who's passed away, they kind of get held up in this, this positive light. Right. I think that's just part of it. And what we we do see that in, um, I think in red, we see the mom and daughter interactions really well, but that's with the biological parent, right? And they're, they're young and they're, there's no death threats, right? But um, with the Disney princess films in particular, what we see is that the mother who passes away is heralded because there's only good memories. Um, mm-hmm. I think a non-Disney film that looks at that interaction is uh, Rupert Saunders' version of Snow White, which is Snow White and the Huntsman. And it's only about five minutes of screen time, if that. I actually think it's like three minutes and 10 seconds or something. We see Snow White interact with her biological mother. And within that, they're, they're kind of played like memories. And they're, it's, it's past interactions. It's things that barely take up the screen, but every interaction is positive and it's delightful. It's not Snow White as a teenager with the hormones yeah. and everything. And what that comes with and that complication that you have with your biological mother, right? When you're going through that stage in your life, or we don't even see like complicated relationships with biological mothers in Disney princess. I mean, I shouldn't say that Merida, you do Merida, you get more of a complex with that. Um, And within Maleficent, some of the newer films you do, but in the older films, um, you don't because the biological mother just doesn't exist. Uh, Even in sleeping beauty, she just, She's asleep with everyone else, you know. She's gone off in the castle while Aurora's in the woods with the three fairies. Um, so yeah, it, there's definitely a part of that where you get that nostalgia and only the the princess remembering the good things. And then when the princess is around the teenage years, which is where a lot of these uh, older animated Disney films come from, we see the stepmother. We see the the negative impact of that relationship. And we never see that with the, I shouldn't say never, we don't see that with the, the biological mother in these older animated films. Yeah. Um, we're starting to see that, which is great. I think that's some positive steps that Disney is taking. But I, I think in the older Disney tales, 
it was mainly about really contrasting that comparison of the good princess and the villainous queen stepmother figure that were in battle for the role of you know the the main character the mother figure the some some people argue it was you know the sexual desire for the prince and all that kind of stuff so that's what we actually end up seeing is more of a combatant of uh, between the two yeah it and is it in any way like does the stepmother in any way represent or is an analogy for just kind of the princess and or any teenage teenager learning how to live in their surrounding world like with all of the pressures and all of the things that a person can do or can't do in a world was the stepmother ever used in a story to kind of represent all of that and sort of focus in on on kind of the constraints of growing up i don't know actually because i've never quite looked at it from that perspective like i mainly look at it from the motherhood perspective Mm -hmm. um but i know snow white has been talked about in that way in that um snow white is aging into maturity whereas stepmother is essentially aging out of maturity Mm -hmm. and becoming menopausal and that sort of thing and so then there's that aspect of it um but i've never actively looked at it as a of representation of uh like the teen angst and the representation of maybe like society being harder on the woman what i've actually seen more so is the princess is being um i don't want to say groomed because that's not the appropriate word but trained to be the good mother by the male figure in the film that's more what i see because up until i mean we don't really get a strong disney princess until the 80s i want to say uh with black cauldron and that one's even forgot about which i think is funny (laughs) but most of the disney princesses we get before then are very passive and they don't really have enough angst within them to act out in any sort of manner um so I think Red is the first film that really does that really well from Disney okay. Pixar combination. I don't think any of the other ones. I mean, Inside Out, or I'm sorry, is that what it is? Inside Out, the one with the emotions. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. yeah, that's that one I think does a great job at showing the emotional regulation of a teenage girl who's going under a lot of pressure from moving to a new city and becoming, you know, older and the relationship that she has with her mom she screams at her sometimes and that sometimes you just have to be sad as a kid. I think that's yeah. a really good portrayal. From but, um, so I think those two films are, are better more so than the Disney princess line. Yeah. And you know that I inside out is one of my favorite Pixar movies um, yeah. because of a, a, the representation of, of just kind of interpersonal and, and, and psychology and between yeah. people and within a person um, mm-hmm. on the topic of, snow white in particular um have you ever read fairest of all a tale of the wicked queen by i have yes yeah that um i listened to i listen to a lot of audiobooks so i i listened to that as part of serena valentino's um a wicked collection Mm -hmm. and that story in particular is 
I think just the loveliest story of of the way that it's told and the way that she was able to take this character who the only attention mm-hmm. she ever she ever gets in and you know snow white uh right. in, at least the disney version is just negative attention mm-hmm. and you know it was so listening to that story it was so heartbreaking to see like just listening to it i knew well eventually she's going to make the turn and eventually she's <laughs> going to make the hill turn and it doesn't happen until very very late extremely late in the story that mm-hmm. you know it it i thought that did a very very good job of kind of telling not from the mother's perspective in my opinion telling like from her perspective how she kind of moved to this place and it wasn't all necessarily because of um snow white who you know throughout the book she talks about how much she loves the child um it was for mm-hmm. kind of outside reasons and and things that were happening to her from the outside world um so i what what are your thoughts on 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 that and are there other are there other stories or representation or are there other stories that have represented the stepmother in a different light than maybe the early Disney movies did. Um, so I'll go with Valentino first. I did read that book. Um, it was originally going to be part of my my PhD, but it couldn't fit in. Um, while I found it interesting to be a tale from the stepmother's perspective, I actually found a lot of issues with the representation of the stepmother figure, okay. particularly because she has a background of abuse. She comes from an abusive home, mm-hmm. mentally abusive, um, emotionally abusive, and then it haunts her throughout. So my my primary issue with that story is that it shows that a, a person who ha- who comes from an abusive home will only make an abusive parent. Okay. That is yeah. my primary issue with that story. Um, while I found the ending very interesting, an interesting take that the stepmother Spoiler alert for those who haven't read it. Um, the the ending is that she's in the mirror and Snow White is looking at her in the mirror and telling her how much she loves her. I found that very interesting. But what I found what could have been even more better is if more better better is if the queen survived and she could have been there in person discussing it and they mm-hmm. could have been there in person healing the wounds that the stepmother obtained from her previous life. Um, and so while I think it was an interesting idea to try and show how there's background to the character and bring it into the Disney line, to me, there was a lot of disconnect as well, because it's like the final 20 pages, she finally becomes the queen that we know in the film. Mm -hmm. And it's a way to incorporate the film into the book. And it just felt very out of character, even as you follow this character down the, the, path that they're taking and through their mental illness because that's what it is it's a representation of mental illness what you end up finding is at some point i think i wrote in the margins that this doesn't even sound like the character anymore which it's not supposed to it's supposed to be that change in character but it's to a point where it's almost an immediate flip and it's not like a slow flip but that's a personal um 
note on that. But overall, yeah, I found it to be an interesting idea, but I didn't like that particular aspect because it's just showing the stepmother again as a villain who was unredeemable and people who come from abusive backgrounds are going to look at that and be like, oh, maybe I can't be a good parent because I come from that background and that's not okay. Like they need to have positive representation as well. Um, so that was my primary issue. And then other stories with the stepmother, I know that Disney recently released Disenchanted, which mm-hmm. was the follow-up to Enchanted. I have not seen it all the way yet. It's on my to-watch list, but I know she takes on the role of the mm-hmm. stepmother. And knowing Disney, I have I don't know how it ends. I'm just guessing how it ends, um, that it ends happily ever after, um, because it is a Disney film. So I'm hoping that one we have some positive representation, but I know things like Disney TV shows, um, Descendants, there's a lot of problems with the representation mm-hmm. of the stepmother figures or the mother figures at that point in time, their mother figures instead of stepmother figures, which is very confusing. Um, there's a lot of problems with that and uh, the representation between the two. And I don't think I can think of a positive stepmother relationship that Disney does. Um, from the from my understanding of the Disney corpus, I I honestly can't think of one. Okay, okay. Um, and so you also had mentioned ageism. That yeah. you know you mentioned a few examples of the the stepmother. You see the stepmother aging. You see the stepmother mm-hmm. age or wither away and die. Um, and you mentioned, you know, in your in your research, you've looked at what in society was going on at that time. Um, so was there? What was the corollary between what was going on in in contemporary society? in the 30s and 40s 20s 30s 40s and those stories that were being told or i should say maybe the tropes that that the the wicked stepmother um becomes more wicked when they become older what Mm -hmm. what were the corollaries between that so with the 30s in particular what i found fascinating was that um, women went, you know, we had the Great Depression. So the the household, the understanding of the heteronormative American household was placed under duress because men were laid off first during the Great Depression and women went to work. Women were impacted eventually during the Great Depression. Um, but then we had the New Deal era. And what that did was really fascinating because what we ended up seeing was the enactment of Oh my gosh, I'm forgetting what it is called. Oh, that's terrible. Um, essentially, what we now know today as uh, derogatorily know it as the um, my brain is going blank. I am so sorry. It's that's okay. The well, the welfare system. So what okay. we originally, what we know derogatorily as the welfare system, was actually established in the 1930s okay. under the New Deal era, and it was. The aid to families with children, I believe is what it was called, or the aid to dependent families with children, the ADFC. And what that did was basically women 
could apply for aid from the government to help them take care of their children. However, women who were widows were actually given preference and they have the statistics. Widowed okay. women were given more money because their husbands died on them. They didn't leave them. They weren't unwed. Most of the time, if mothers were unwed or the husband left, they had a much harder time getting aid from the government. Hmm. Um, so that was really fascinating because the New Deal era sort of this this aid to dependent families or yeah, aid dependent families, idea with children. Um, sorry. What no we worries. saw, yeah, what we saw was that they defined what it meant to be a good mother, and they needed that definition to provide these mothers with financial aid. And women were essentially then the mother figure was forced to conform if they wanted that aid. Gwendolyn okay. Mink is um she's a, a historian who's written a lot about this. Um and so she she says that, you know, it was a means of conformity for women at that point in time. If you didn't conform to their idea of good mother, you were not a good mother. And back then a good mother was young, she was married, she had 2.5 kids in a house, you know, mm -hmm. he didn't work. He didn't run a kingdom by herself. He was, you know, the, the children were her biological children. They were not yeah. stepchildren. And so what we then see in the 1937 film, Grimhilda, the, the king isn't mentioned once at all throughout the entire film. He is not mentioned. We know there's a king because Snow White exists. We know there was a mom because Snow White exists. However, we know that it's not the wicked stepmother. And so what's really fascinating then is that even though the king and biological mother are not mentioned, we are aware of their existence. And Grimhilda is running the kingdom by herself. She has no king. She's running it all. She has her own adversary, not adversary, but um, she has the mirror who tells her information that she needs, her confidant, um, and she has the huntsman. And that's it. It's a very small kingdom, apparently. Um, and what we later find out in the film when Snow White is actually picking flowers before the huntsman scares her away is that she asks the bird, are you an orphan too? So there's this assumption that the king and queen are dead. Yeah. And that Grimhilda is running this kingdom by herself. She's making Snow White do chores. She's, you know, the castle is only pristine because of the child's work. The queen doesn't work. She doesn't do the household chores. She doesn't cook. She doesn't do any of those things. And we see that throughout the movie. These are all things a good mother's supposed to do, and they're the things we see Snow White doing. So we get this sort of really interesting representation in the 1930s of that dichotomy that supposes that that represents what is good and what is bad motherhood. Yeah. Um, and so Snow White is essentially prepped for motherhood at that point in time. Um, what we see in like the 1950s, we had more of those television family shows right where we had uh leave it to beaver and all of that on the tv and we had the the pos the supposed positive representation of the 1950s american tv mom and we get almost the exact same representation there of what it means to be good and what it means to be bad and um i forget who it was but in mediated moms they talk about this and they actually list all the characters and things and what it means to be good and bad and during in, in American television during these time periods, um, particularly for mother figures, so it's mediated mom. Um, and we actually don't really see a whole lot of differentiation and definitions, even okay. though the 1950s was very different from the 1930s in the United States. 
Um, and then today, you look at today, we had the Me Too movement, we've had all of these other things, and we are just starting to get different representations of motherhood. And by that, I mean, they're more complex representations of the biological mother in Disney films. We aren't necessarily getting positive adoptive mothers. We're not necessarily getting positive representation of stepmothers or stepmothers with children or blended families in Disney princess films. But Disney is giving us different representations of family like you have um, in fosters and things like that. So it's this really interesting, all of a sudden, within probably from 2010 to 2020, we got this shift in mm -hmm. Disney of looking at things differently. And Once Upon a Time is a really great uh, portrayal of that because we get all these different mother figures in that time span. Um, and we get a really complex background to a lot of the characters, not only background, but also foreground, like uh, the, the future, what they could be doing if they were placed in the real world. And we get to see those characters interact outside of their magical land. Yeah. So yeah. Um... Yeah, that's that's very, very interesting. And I, when you were talking, I started trying to think, are there any projects that do put stepmothers in a more positive light? Um, which is which is really, really interesting that, you know, mm -hmm. the how, how the and the company throughout its history has definitely evolved to the types of stories that they're telling or evolved in the types of stories they're telling. Um, and so I wonder if that is possibly something that that's coming in the future. You know, I mean, like right now where you have a lot of movies don't really feature a set villain. Um, <laughs> it's, it's how people are dealing with trauma and from, from Disney proper movies, the, 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 Mm -hmm. the, the animated the princess movies to pixar movies to even look at the mcu i mean the phase yeah. four of the mcu was all about dealing with trauma and how yeah. you know people are dealing with trauma from from the end of phase three and things like that and moving forward um so another thing that 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 i wanted to know is and i'm not sure i i asked it properly mm-hmm why why is it that age becomes such a strong factor in i guess quote unquote someone being evil you know i mean we have this fascination in our society with with aging and how um people are supposed to age gracefully, especially mm -hmm. women, the pressure that our society's put on women to age gracefully and the, like the definitions of how to age. Um, where does that come from? And, and, and do these stories, what influence do these stories have on that fascination in our society of like aging? So that's, that's actually a really interesting question because it's different for men and women. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and by that, I mean, it's different for those who can, who identify as women, who bear, who can bear children and things like that. As people who are women presenting age, we're no longer seen, and this is a terrible thing to say, but we're no longer seen as fertile and therefore our purpose 
is no longer needed. And that's as terrible as that sounds. That's what my research honestly has led me to believe. It comes down to this really ageist portrayal and really sexist portrayal that women are only needed for childbearing reasons. And that is just, I hate that that's where my research has led me to, but that's where it has led me to. Um, Particularly when I was looking at the Rupert Saunders Snow White and the Huntsman, I know it's not Disney, but the actress who was playing Snow White's mom at the time was, um, oh, her name is Liberty, um, Liberty Ross, and she was in her early 30s. She passes away in the film at about 33 years old. In medicine, after a certain age, women are considered uh, high risk for pregnancies. Mm-hmm. We're considered geriatric pregnancies. And it's at that point in time that we actually see women on TV screens also age. So it's about the mid 30s. Like I said, like 35 years old, we're okay. no longer deemed, you know, viable. And that's what it been to look at films and things like that if a woman's older than 35 she's seen as old and women in Hollywood who are older who have quote-unquote aged gracefully have found it difficult to find roles in Hollywood films because mm-hmm. they don't want to cast older women they're no longer uh, you know it's a patriarchal society that they're no longer sexually viable blah 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 right so there's all these reasons that go behind it and so that's what we end up seeing is that if you don't look young forever, you're no longer considered beautiful or good or anything like that. And that's what we see, like in The Devil Wears Prada, which is, I believe, a Disney film. Um, we get the young Anne Hathaway and Meryl Streep, who was also relatively young, in my opinion, at the time, who's the villain. She's got the white hair. She's thinner. She's what have you. In the Disney princesses, what we see then is the princess is young. Snow White is 13 to 14 years old. Um, Aurora is in her teens. A lot of these other princesses are in their teens. And the villainess is usually older. She's usually beyond childbearing years and is the villain. Um, so not only is she the villain, she's active. She's disrupting the familial, the, the heteronormative familial structure of husband wife biological children the nuclear family as it were Mm -hmm. and so we see this disruption and that's why there's a lot of negative portrayal and women have been fighting those stigmas for eons um and we see a lot and now we're getting more light into that where we get to see more um discussions about pregnancy and things like that with mothers um with Hollywood with actresses, with famous mothers, with people talking about pregnancy, people talking about not wanting to have children and mm-hmm. why that's their personal choice and things like that. And that doesn't make them a villain. It's just that's their choice. Women were not put on this earth to have babies. We have other things yeah. to do with our lives. Um, so that's sort of where that age perspective comes for women. For men, it's a little different because it's more about um power and control right it's about the older man usually is senile or he's uh, used as humor in disney Mm -hmm. work or he's a villain right it those are really it for the older man you once in a while you get a helper but it's usually a kooky helper right he's he's kind of um a little bit of madness kind of put in with his character where he doesn't get everything out in a straight line or 
you know, he speaks in riddles or something like that, like we were talking about the, the Mad Hatter before we started. Um, and so for them, it's more about act, the actual process of aging and how it's terrifying, how you can become, you know, you can have dementia and things like that as you get older and this loss of the, the physical body and not being able to lift or run or anything anymore because you're getting older yeah. and your body is breaking down. And that is terrifying. Um, but we still don't get really positive. I think Carl from Up is the most positive portrayal I've seen of an older man in a Disney film. Mm -hmm. um, and we get to see that grumpy man kind of break out of the shell. He's been through heartache and pain. He's a really great complex backstory and he's not a villain. And the other villain actually is an older man who's yeah. had a very different life and who's more power hungry. And what we get to see is a much better dynamic between two older men and what it means to be good versus bad. And we actually don't get that with women. Yeah. Um, so we, we get this really interesting dichotomy of ageism and sexism all kind of balled together. So, you know what, when you were talking, it made me think of when you started talking about, and unfortunately, everything you were saying about female representation in the movies and, and, and just kind of in society um unfortunately all of that like i just kind of like had to sort of nod along with that because yeah. unfortunately that is true mm -hmm. for for men i've all like i don't and tell me if this is incorrect i've always sort of gotten the impression that whereas the fortunate stance a lot of society takes is as women get older they you know they're unfortunately you know in their positions but as men get older they actually gain more control but it, you you look at you know you look at the uh, ceos of companies and you look at you know mm -hmm. like um men in different places of power they tend to be older. So mm -hmm. two questions. One is, is that is what I'm saying accurate? And two, what I see represented in movies for women is unfortunately the reality or unfortunately the way like society views that but I, I see kind of a disconnect with with the way men are viewed, aging men are viewed in the world versus in the movies. Mm -hmm. If that makes sense, please attempt to answer. Yeah, that. yeah no, I, I know what you mean. So for older men, it's they have control to an extent. Okay. When they start to age to like a certain point in time, when they start to have to actually physically use a cane or they have a physical representation of a disability of some sort that's when they're disempowered and that's the representation okay. that we get so we we get like the silver fox kind of representation a lot that is a common representation but i don't see that as an older man i see that as a man who's middle age um okay. but that's that's a personal way that i view age um it's the the older man who who has a physical like like i said whether his back's out or he's got a bad knee or something like that and he needs pain or he's like a physical, actual manifestation of a disability. 
that's where you get to see that loss of control because he's losing control over his body. We do get a vast amount of older men who are in control, who like an avatar, right? One of the, the villains in the first avatar, he's this extremely buff army guy with silver hair and a giant scar across his face. And he was older, but he was older to an extent. Like he wasn't okay. a grandfather. He wasn't, you know, if he was, you know, a father, he might have been an older father, but he wasn't like his kids were often married kind of age of a father. Yeah. Um, and so that's a different sort of age bracket than what we see with women who are usually in a younger age bracket when yeah. they're considered old. And that's what's really fascinating is men can get older than women in film. Um, you know, and women aren't allowed. You know, one thing that might be really interesting, and I believe it's, I believe it's May 2020. Four, mm-hmm. um, is when the the newest Captain America movie comes out, and the you know, um, Thaddeus Ross, who mm-hmm. was played by William Hurt, unfortunately is, mm-hmm. is not played by William Hurt anymore because he passed away, mm-hmm. but he's going to be played by um, Harrison Ford, who is yeah. you know very popular, very well known for you know. Han Solo, Indiana Jones, a lot of different roles and has played a lot of different roles as he has gotten older. I mean, he mm-hmm. this last month, the fifth Indiana Jones movie came out, you know, yeah. it will. And in that story, he is supposed to be he is president of the United States at that point. Mm-hmm. And so it will be interesting to see how that story is told, because just the way I kind of view it is, you know, if they're using someone like Harrison Ford, they're probably putting a lot of emphasis on that person mm-hmm. and he's going to be in control and right. Spoiler, I guess for anybody who, 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 who cares about it. Um, Thaddeus <laughs> Ross, Thaddeus Thunderbolt Ross, like in the mm-hmm. comics becomes red Hulk. So he actually yeah. becomes like this this kind of manifestation of of raw power and like not knowing mm-hmm. how to control it and everything. That yeah. will be interesting to see how how that character is handled because correct me if I'm wrong, I see that as possibly a different way that an older man is represented in a movie i don't i don't know if you see it that way or not i see it as really interesting um because there's also the view of toxic masculinity that i haven't talked about yet either which is like i said in avatar it's that hyper like he had to get really buff i can't remember the actor's name so life of me can't even remember the character's name he's the villain And what we see is that toxic masculinity where you have to be buff, you have to be in control, you're, you can't cry, you can't have emotions, all of that kind of stuff. And what I see in Captain America then, if they do, if, in my head, I can see it going one of two ways in all audience, in all honesty with Thaddeus Ross. I can see them, Harrison Ford, um, becoming the Red Hulk, losing power and, or having so much power that he loses control of it, which is still that loss of control for an old okay. character yeah um or during the experiment he becomes young and then he loses control so he becomes a completely different character altogether so they can put in a new actor 
So the way that they did um, Indiana Jones is they wanted to do the final movie to end it, right? Because Harrison Ford is getting older and they want to be able to get whatever they can out of him before yeah. he unfortunately, right. So I, w- I will find it very fascinating. That's basically the two scenarios I can see going on is, is um, Harrison Ford, you know, just becoming the Red Hulk within it or them teasing at the end. Harrison Ford has somehow become younger and is now the Red Hulk or is going to become the Red Hulk with this younger actor who will then take on. Okay. Um, so, which either case I see as somewhat problematic for an ageist portrayal. Like, can we not just have an older character um, who's complex, who's not necessarily terrible, and he's not necessarily losing control, but, you know, complex characters are always nice because then they're not too good and they're not too bad yeah. and they're realistic. And that's what yeah. people are kind of looking for. And I don't think Disney has really hit the mark a whole lot on that, except I think Carl is not a bad ex- exception, um, but his character does have, you know, his, it, it's all about um, character development for him. And he does go through a pretty interesting character development. Um, so, yeah, no, I think Carl would be a good exception. Okay. Um, I'm arguing and- with myself. You know, um, I argue with myself all the time. Um, <laughs> the what's interesting, what you just said, what's interesting about Marvel comics and the MCU in particular mm-hmm. is, you know, famously in in comic books, people don't die; they can yep. be killed off if they're if 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 they need to boost cells, and then they can bring it back when they're they're you know they need to be in a new book or cells mm-hmm. are, are doing poorly. But I've heard a lot of people talk about, um, and Sean Gerber, uh, a, another friend of the class, he's talked about this a lot on his podcast about MCU fan show, that, you know, as him and his partner have, as um, as these actors age, you know, they do have to find someone younger to yep. play that role. So that's very interesting what you just said about the possibility of Harrison Ford um, you know, becoming younger, so essentially a, a different person can can carry that on as as the mm-hmm. stories as the stories you know keep going. Um, and that also it makes me think of something we talked about before we started recording. What influence do you think, especially animated mm-hmm. features, have on? this perception of age because when something you know when something's animated it's animated Mm -hmm. once it's not updated you don't see that character aging I'm always fascinated with like the the social media posts showing like if Disney princesses and princes became parents or as they age like here you know you don't see that in, in the features obviously yeah what what influence do you think kind of the static nature, the one timestamp of animation has on our views of aging? I think it's not just aging that it impacts, but it's that representation altogether and that understanding of the film and the social discourse that it brings with it throughout time. It constantly impacts because it's in recirculation all of the time. 
I mean, we're talking about Snow White, Snow White being remade. So now it's back in circulation. And so kids are watching again. They're getting ready for the, the release of the new Snow White film. And what they're seeing is a film from the 1930s that represents, that doesn't really truly represent what it means to be, you know, you can never really represent it, but we don't get positive representations of what it means to be a 14 year old girl and a 30 year old woman in a society that's technically we're in a patriarchy and in a patriarchal society that the, the tales were written in. And so we don't actually get that positive representation, but they're viewing it and they're seeing Oh, the, the wicked stepmother has a secret lair within the lair is the first type of book we see in the whole movie. And she reads, how dare she? She studies, you know, alchemy and has an alembic system and is a scientist of sorts that's villainous, you know, mm -hmm. and whereas Snow White is baking with animals and singing songs and sweeping up and taking care of the dwarves like a mother, a good mother would, right? And so they're going to be watching that and that's going to be back in their heads again, reprinting, rewriting, because when, you know, particularly at those younger age, kids are impressionable and what mm -hmm. they're viewing helps them understand the world around them. And so they're going to view that and understand the world differently. No matter which way it, it is, they might look at that and be like, oh, then I have to be like Snow White. You do not have to be like Snow yeah, White unless yeah. you want to be like Snow White. That's different. Um, feminism is about letting women do what they want, right? Um, and men do what they want and equality and all that. But so it, it's really dangerous to have these still in circulation, but it's also good to have them in circulation because it allows them to then come back up in conversation as we've spoken about and to help big conglomerates like Disney to refocus the film itself, particularly when you're doing adaptations and how they could maybe change things so that way they're more positive in their representations and to re-alter them. And ageism is part of that and how they're going to okay. reframe it. And I'm very interested in how they're going to reframe um, the stepmother figure in the 2024 Snow White because we know nothing about it. Yeah. Um, we know very little. We just know Gal Gadot is playing the Wicked Stepmother, and that is it. They've been very tight-lipped about it. I think we've only seen one or two shots from, like, paparazzi with Rachel Zegler as Snow White, and that's really it. And so I'm very interested to see what they're going to do, because from the time before they started, you know, during really early stages and what have you, we had the and even before that, and it's been disrupted by the COVID pandemic, and now it's been through the Don't Say Gay Bill and all of that in Florida. So it's going to be really interesting to see what Disney does with this film. Yeah. Do you think that the Walt Disney Company uses, I mean, you, you kind of mentioned it, but do you think it's a conscious effort by the company to do live action mm -hmm. adaptations so they they yeah. can update those stories to kind of be uh more closely aligned with the, the either views today or the way the company wants people to view them i have two ideas on that one is that fairy tales are meant to be adapted to live on and to take on new social discourse okay. and new mm -hmm. representations and things like that so that way they can be told again in different ways and so that's why we see them in like young adult literature being rewritten and things like that and taking on different perspectives. The other way that I see it is 
Disney is a corporation and they have copyright. And when they redo <laughs> the tales of live action, they get to keep that copyright. Um, they just did that with one of the TV shows was ending and they introduced Steamboat yeah. Willie. And so that way they could keep the Steamboat Willie copyright. Yeah. And so Disney is very smart when it comes to their copyright. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a primary factor in their constant live action remake. I would love for them to do an animated remake of something or even something new in animation because we've gotten a lot of you know the 3d animated what have you but you know their live action has been their focus for a while lately and animation is still an art form and i think these constant live action remakes are hurting the idea that animation is still an art form and needs to look at an art form and they need to continue to animate like we used to get and maybe not necessarily the 3d animation that we get in like tangled and frozen but old school 2d animation levels. yeah i think it's something yeah. that a few of us would like to see again at least once or twice because it is that nostalgia of our youth coming in like we want to see a little bit some more cartoons in the film yeah. Yeah. um but yeah so yeah i i think it's it's two-pronged there i think it's part of the fairy tale living on and i think it's disney being a smart business and and real quick the <laughs> what you're referring to with um steamboat willie is the, the the copyright for um the original version of mickey <laughs> mouse that appeared in steamboat willie um yeah. that was coming up um and so by introducing a new um <clears throat> excuse me a new product with that uh, <clears throat> then they're able to extend that copyright and and not have it go into the public domain um, right like um winnie pooh winnie the pooh yeah. went into public domain yeah yeah domain i can't talk um but yeah and, so i'm interested to see what happens with that um <clears throat> another thing we talked about before we started recording was um you had said you you are incorporating or you doing some work dealing with the bad hatter <laughs> Yeah. And how the Mad Hatter in the Disney version of mm -hmm. Alice in Wonderland, the first representation of the Mad Hatter was old, um, kind of like, as you're describing, not having as much control. He's sort of manic. He, you know, he he's, and then throughout history of that story with the company, he's gotten younger. <laughs> and to where now he's in some cases even like a romantic interest um mm -hmm. for for Alice the character um and that's really really that stuck with me that's really really interesting and why in particular do you think they chose the mad hatter for that transformation is there another character that they've done similar with? And in particular, have they done that with any female characters? Oh, that's interesting. Um, I don't know if they've done it with any other characters from fairy tales. I can't think of one. And I'm going through the Disney corpus in my head that are based on fairy tales. And I, yeah, I can't think of one that they've done it with where they've euthanized them. Um, 
I don't think they've done it with female characters. Um, I mean, because one, one that's in my go ahead. Yeah. Oh no, I was just thinking of Jessica Rabbit, and like that's not right. <laughs> the 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 one I don't know one that I've thought of as as Mother Gothel and Tangled, but obviously at the end when she meets her demise, mm-hmm. you you see that she she was not a young woman um right and hundreds of years old yeah yeah and i don't i don't know if any other representations that they've ever really had that um and so again it might be interesting if if they if they do that in the new snow white movie or how they portray her but so why the mad why did they do that with the mad hatter they wanted to give alice a love interest because they wanted okay. there to be a love interest in the tale. And it's something that, um, so things like in, in fandoms, a lot of fandoms were what they call shipping. Um, mm-hmm. So they were placing their, whether it was their fan fiction or what have you, with their fan creations, they were looking at Alice and the Mad Hatter as love interests. So that was popular, um, not necessarily in the 30s, or, I'm sorry, not the 30s. Um, Alice was in the 50s? I think it was 1951? I, be- I believe so. Yeah. So um, I'm not so sure about that. But there there were fans. Um, but yeah, so in 1951, it was by Ed Wynn, who was an older actor. He was a comedian. Um, he, he'd already, you know, he was in Mary Poppins and, and all of that. I think Mary Poppins came a little later. But um, he was known for his sort of vaudeville-like humor mm-hmm. and acts. Um, and so the character of the Mad Hatter was based on him. And so, like I said earlier, that's very close to how I perceived Lewis Carroll's version. Um, but then when we look at other variants of it, more modern variants, I should say, because there are a lot of films on Alice in Wonderland dating back to 1901. I think one's like in eight, like 1898 or something like that. Okay. It's very old, very old versions of it. Um, Disney even did um, Alice's comedies as some of his yeah. first work. Yeah. Um, I don't know if the Mad Hatter was in it. I haven't seen them all the way through, um, but I don't think he was. Um, anyway, so what we have seen in more modern retellings of the tale, particularly in the 2000s, 2010s, is this love interest has been added because they, they wanted a romance in there. They wanted a romance okay. plot. They wanted Alice to be an older female. If Alice is a young child, it's a children's movie, right? Because it's based on a child. If Alice is a young woman, they can sell it to different audience. They can sell it to the adult audience as well. And there is this sexualization of Alice. And then there's this romance thrown in for, you know, the audience. I want to say female audience is very sexist of me, but they usually put in romances for the women, not so much the men. Um, that was a very gender binary terminology there, but that's basically what it comes down to. And so what we then see is this uh, aging of Alice and this youthening of the Mad Hatter to create this sort of love interest. And in Tim Burton's uh, Alice in Wonderland, I actually read they were originally supposed to have a kiss and it was supposed to be a love interest between Johnny Depp's Johnny Depp, um, Alice and... Um, I can never pronounce her name right, but Mia, the actress, her Alice version, um, and they got rid of it. 
okay. there was a romance in there originally, but there was also a, a larger age gap there. Yeah. Um, and then we have the Alice sci-fi miniseries where they are love interests, they're the closest in age. And then Sebastian Stan's version, there isn't really a in a love like a romantic love there's a father and daughter love aspect put in there but he's the youngest i have seen of the match yeah. yeah um and a couple other things before i i want to i want to make sure we get we get to everything a couple other things you had mentioned um your you are co-editing um <laughs> a, a collection on the frozen phenomenon and also Nightmare Before Christmas, um, you work heavily with uh, Disnet, um, mm-hmm. and and then so talk about talk about those two things, um, and then we'll <laughs> we'll g- get into our rapid questions. Sure. Um, the two terms I forgot while I was talking previously about the Mad Hatter and Alice is uh, the male gaze and the female gaze. That's very okay. important part of that. So the terms just literally popped in my head. I was like, oh, why didn't I say those? Um, But yeah, so I work with uh, uh, two, I'm a co-editor on two collections that will be coming out very soon, hopefully. Um, We're in the final stages. So it's the Frozen Phenomenon Collection and The Nightmare Before Christmas, who I work with, amazing scholars on that. And they're each sort of um, coming up with sort of big anniversaries. Frozen's turning 10. uh, The Nightmare Before Christmas is turning 30 this year. I'm very excited about uh, the Nightmare Before Christmas. It was it came out when I was born, like yay um, to age myself. Um, so I'm very excited about that. But yeah, I get to work with a lot of of Disney scholarship on that from various aspects, and I get to see a wide range of scholarship in in Disney scholars. Um, and so yeah, with uh, the Frozen phenomenon, I'm co-writing a chapter with Sabrina Minimeyer, Dr. Sabrina Minimeyer from the University of Kassel on. Um, queerness and frozen and queering of characters and we go over a little bit of the disney and the dose gay bill and what the haze code is and all of that and then um the nightmare before christmas i am writing a chapter on cultural appropriation um and how does a tale of cultural appropriation as something that fandom uh and fans have been talking about for eons but there's actually not any uh, academic work that blatantly shows how it can be seen as a fairy tale of cultural appropriation so i just talk about that um and then yeah uh with divnet i am the head of communications which means i do a lot of stuff i do uh, the divnet blog i run our twitter and our social media account and um we actually just had a divnet leadership meeting which is super fun and we have a lot of great things coming up and we're planning all types of amazing events for ecrs phds academics of all ages sizes (laughs) um and Creed, um, but we are also really excited to be looking at bringing in more um, people in industry and things like that to Disnet as well, because we are, while we are an academic research-based organization, we are an organization for academics and in- industry professionals. Um, yeah. So it's very exciting stuff. Yeah, we just had our great conference, which you know you are aware of, and we got to see some really great scholarship there. Yeah, yeah, and. Um... And I actually I had a meeting last week with um with someone that that they they are very interested in Disnet and the very they reached out about and and I am taking the liberty it's been announced um 
People have announced it on social media. I've announced it on social media. So if it's not allowed to say, I'll just edit this out. But you're in early 2025 is is the first issue of the International Journal of Disney Studies. Um, And so you you have you have a, a lot going on. Um, and yeah. you, you're, you're, you're very, very busy, um, yeah. in, in, in doing all of this. And so it's, it, it's awesome that on, um, do you have anything, anything else to say about, uh, or anything to say about the, the international journal of Disney studies? Um, we actually, I just had a meeting about that this week too. Um, so we're very excited for it. Uh, our portal for submissions is supposed to be open by the end of the month on intellect okay. website. So we're actually really excited. So by September, we should be able to start getting submissions in for our journal. And we're very excited about it. Um, we will be starting to advertise for it. So yeah, you're allowed to say that it okay. exists and that okay. we're doing it. Don't worry about that. Yeah, no, that was me uh, oversight. I've been up since 4 a.m. So my brain is not fully um, no, no worries. aware at that moment. But yeah, no, we were really excited about it. We just had, um, like I said, a meeting about it. Um, I am a commentary editor, so we are looking for, you know, commentaries, uh, book reviews. Book reviews are, are for with different um, people, but commentary reviews. So if somebody wants to write, you know, about theme parks or if they want to write um, critically about, uh, you know, new ride openings or films or what have you, or industry professionals who want to, you know, write about working on a film or a ride or a cast member or something like that we that's kind of where the commentary reviews are um we're very you know excited it's kind of a new area we're trying to explore um but yeah all kinds of really great stuff happening at at disney yeah yeah really really cool um but before we get to our rapid questions um is there anything i've missed that you think is important to to talk about anything else you want to say or concluding remarks on your research and fandom? Um, no, we've talked about a lot. I <laughs> think. Okay. Okay. Uh, I'm I'm pretty happy with what we talked about. Yeah. Okay. Then, so these rapid questions, these are ones that I ask, um, and you can you you can answer, and that's it. You can explain if you want. You don't have to explain anything if you don't want. So are you ready? <laughs> yeah. Um, so for, first question, um, favorite Disney resort. And by that, I mean, I'm talking about Walt Disney World, Disneyland, Disneyland Paris, the the, the actual, you know, the the full, not just a, a park or hotel, but the the okay. full resort. So I've actually only ever been to the one in Florida. And I always... Okay. And I can never remember if that's Disneyland or Disney World, and I should know it. <laughs> no, terrible. No worries. Um, Walt Disney. Walt Disney World. Uh, Walt Disney is, World, right? And, WDW. And, yeah, and in the class, students um, each semester, probably more than half the students in the class have not been to a Disney park, and if they have been to a Disney park because of our location, they've mm-hmm. probably been to Walt Disney World. Um, I yeah. myself, the at the end of July, just made my first trip to to Disneyland. Um, yeah. That so those those are the only two resorts I've ever been to. Okay, so now within Walt Disney World, four yeah. parks, 
um, Animal Kingdom, Magic Kingdom, Epcot, Hollywood Studios. Do you have a favorite park? When I was a kid, it was Animal Kingdom because I loved animals. As an okay. adult, it is Epcot. Okay. All right. Um, Much slower pace. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It it's it, it's the largest walking park, you know, yeah. but um so animal kingdom is by far the largest part but but you don't mm -hmm. we don't walk much of that as guests um yeah. any disney park do you have a favorite ride so the last ride i remember going on is the rock and roller coaster because it was inside and it was um you had the the glow in the dark stuff everywhere and yeah. it just made me really happy to be whizzing around really fast and a bunch of bright lights. Okay. All right. Um, it was also air conditioned. So that was like the yeah. top of my yeah. Very important when you're when you're in Hollywood studios, especially depending on what time of the year. Uh, yeah. right now you definitely need air conditioning to be there. Um and then last on Disney Parks. Mm -hmm. Do you have a favorite snack in a Disney park? I'm going to go with, I like the Rainforest Cafe, but it, I haven't been since I was 16. So it's been a good chunk of years since okay. I was last at a park. I'm supposed to be going to Disneyland Paris next year. So I will obviously have an update. <laughs> okay. All right. Um, so then because you do work dealing with Disney princesses, um, and, and, and the perspective for the perspective of motherhood in those movies, mm -hmm. Um, do you, this is a two part question. Do you have a favorite Disney princess and do you have a favorite Disney princess mother? Um, okay. So no for a favorite Disney princess. I actually, okay. because I analyze them so much, it's so hard for me to have a favorite. Um, it would, if it, it'd be like a tie if I had to choose between, Moana, Mulan, and Rhea. Um, okay. So some more of the more modern ones, essentially. Um, and then when it comes to mothers, not in a Disney princess line, um, I think one of my favorite representations of family is Meet the Robinsons. And that's okay. uh, a kind of forgotten Disney movie. But for me, that one was really important about found family and um good good representation of family and the blending of family and how they even have cousins that they're like we have no idea who they're related to yeah. but they're family now like it reminds me very much of the adams family and how they're just kind of like yeah we're all family yeah yeah um i i really really like meet the robinsons and and um especially when the boys were a little younger we, we would watch that and with the you know the quote-unquote villain of the mm -hmm. movie um, kind of the lesson was, look, you know, depending on how this person's treated and then like they made the decisions based yep. on how they were treated. And and, you know, so one lesson is to treat people kindly. Right. Another is if you are not treated kindly, you know, you don't have to make the decisions that this character, this character made. Um, right. Do uh, so I don't do you have a favorite? movie that deals with a disney princess or the relationship between a disney princess and and their mother or their surroundings 
Um, I'm thinking of all the Disney princess movies in my head. Uh, if I had to choose, it would the for me the best one to look at between that that dichotomy is I would say it's not a favorite but it's an interesting one to look at which is the 2015 Cinderella because we get okay. that extra we get like two minutes of extra dialogue from the wicked stepmother that I found was so crucial to understanding the character and her perspective that the the one chapter I actually wrote shows that Cinderella is kind of a villain in this tale um, mm -hmm. because it, it showed a really interesting way in which the story can be perceived if we actually looked at it from the stepmother's perspective and not Cinderella's because everything we see in the Disney princess line is so focused on the princess as the primary character. We don't get to see the mother as the primary character. We kind of do with Disenchanted because um, that's the premise of it. But I would like to see an actual Disney princess and her mother at the center of the tale, and they're not fighting each other. Yeah. Um, which, unfortunately, Merida, they are kind of fighting. Um, so, yeah, not yeah. really a, a favorite favorite, but that one I think is a good one to look at that dichotomy. Um, on that note, what is kind of what's your outlook or take on on the Maleficent movies? and the relationship between the characters in those movies so the maleficent movies i found really great um because we had a female director who was at the heart of maleficent and so what we found then what we see is this probably the most positive representation we have of an adoptive mother in Disney, um which is maleficent obviously and her relationship with aurora and how it's very complex and how at the end, it's Maleficent who loves first kiss because there's no truer, you know, love than a mother and her child. And so to me, that was really fascinating. And that Disney finally has a film where the adoptive parent isn't necessarily wicked um, and more of an anti-hero and who had been, you know, turned because of abuse and things like that. But she was still good at the center of it. And she had been good and she had been wrong. Um, so we actually got a really great character out of that. Um, but there is still problems with the motherhood representation in Maleficent, Mistress of Evil. And I think Rebecca Rowe writes um, re really well about it in one of her articles, which title I can never remember, but it's on Maleficent motherhood. Um, and it's about the good, bad dichotomy that we always find mothers in and how Maleficent could either be good or she could be bad throughout the film. And there's obviously very distinct parts where she is good at the beginning bad throughout the majority of it and then good at the end and she mm -hmm. can't be either at the same time she has to choose and so she couldn't be a hero in the film all the way she had to be evil for a little bit um and so i think she does a really great job uh, rebecca does a really great job discussing that um and that was really my main issue with mistress of evil is because we get that maleficent and the biological mother in comparison and and all of that um and that Maleficent was still viewed as the villain. Anyway, yeah, yeah, I keep going on. But yeah, um, really interesting. I think it showed a positive step for Disney, but I have not seen positive continued on um, in other films. Okay. Um, and the last one, um, and it, this one's a might be a little bit more involved. <laughs> I'll ask it first and I'll kind of explain. Uh -huh. What 
princess movie would you like to see be made? That could be a fairy tale that has not been adapted by Disney. It could also be a an existing fairy tale movie that has been adapted by Disney with a different type of dynamic. I have so many. <laughs> <laughs> so there's a, like I have a bookshelf right in front of me that has all these like anthologies of fairy tales that yeah. haven't been touched by Disney. Um some of them have princesses in them, some of them don't. So there are fairy tales out there that Disney hasn't touched that aren't fairy tale based. I would love to yeah. see some of those. Um, like maybe a Frahola. Um, well, that would be good. Um, but I think Disney hasn't really touched the twelve dancing princesses. And to okay. me, that would be fascinating because I've seen some really interesting modern takes on it. Um, and so I, I think that would be a good one to see because Barbie did one, but I've seen more interesting takes in um young adult fiction and things like that that would be fascinating um there are a lot of so what we see of arabian nights is actually only one of the many tales and aladdin is only one of the many tales mm -hmm. and um and so while disney did kind of expand on that a little bit more in the second aladdin and things like that we didn't really see a lot of the arabian nights um and there's also a lot of Japanese fairy tales that they don't touch. I would love to see more of that because there would be more representation there, particularly for the Asian community. And I think that would be really good. Um, so there's just a lot of, of things out there that are fairy tale based that aren't maybe Western focused that I would love to see Disney take on and have them take it on with, you know, if it's a if it's an Asian fairy tale an Asian voice at the helm of it as a director or something like that. So we actually get the film that's not necessarily Western centric. So that would be really great for me to see. And was something that I would want them to do because they, they did that a little bit with Raya and the Last Dragon. And I would love that to be continued on and that okay. we, they kind of just stop focusing more on these live action remakes of films they've already done. Um, and maybe, maybe I would like to see a slightly different retelling of um the black cauldron i think that, that that film deserves more hype than what it got i think atlantis deserves more hype than what it got um so yeah i would love to see just kind of a revamp not like a remake but just like a revamping of look at these films that we did like come see them they might not okay. be very so based but yeah okay all right well awesome thank you so much for doing this um mm -hmm. And um, for anyone who wants more information, what's the best way to get in touch with you, B? Um, so I am on Twitter. Um, my Twitter is, oh gosh, I can remember. It's B-E-L-D-R-I-D-G-3-9 at, I, I believe. I'm sorry, it's not Twitter anymore. X. Um, <laughs> but I'm there. I'm on Facebook. I'm on academia.edu um, under Brittany Eldridge. Um, that's my official name. Um, I'm also on Disnet's website. You can find me there. I have the Disnet blog Gmail. So if you have a blog idea for Disney, you can always email disnetblog at gmail.com. Um, it's up on the Disnet website. Uh, yeah, so I'm I'm sort of everywhere. I'm, I also run the Disnet Twitter. So you can always find us at, at underscore 
Biznet, B-I-S-N-E-T. Um, so yeah, I'm just sort of everywhere. <laughs> okay. Well, awesome. And and again, yeah. thank you. Thank you for doing this. Uh, this is really, really great information. Um, yeah. I learned a ton from this. Um, I hope I'm other glad. people listening and watching um, enjoyed it. And um, thank you very much, B. Have a great rest of your day. Yeah, you too. Bye. Bye. Well, that's going to do it for another episode of the Being a Fan of Disney podcast. I'm your host, Cody Haver. I want to take this opportunity to thank everyone for joining us and listening and to say that I hope you found the information, whether content covered in class or interviews with guests, fun, informational, entertaining, and even inspiring. If you want to follow along with the class, you can do so by following me on Twitter at chaverphd. That's C H A V. A-R-D, Ph.D., or by joining the public group on Facebook, Being a Fan of Disney. If you want to engage with any of the guests we've had in class, their contact information is included in each of the show notes. So again, thank you for joining us. It was a great time having you. If you like what you hear, please share this out so other people can engage with the information, possibly learn more about their Disney fandom and their love for all things Disney related. With that, Thank you again and have a great day.